Well, last Sunday, we got into one of the most misunderstood and most misapplied sections in all of the book of Romans. If you're just joining us on, uh, online or even here today, we've been studying the book of Romans. We're coming on three years that we have been working through Romans. We're in chapter 14. And uh, what we're in this section largely in Romans where Paul has pivoted from what he was teaching in chapters 1 through 11 about the character of the gospel and how God makes sinners righteous. He pivots with the words, I beseech you now uh, in view of God's mercy. Uh, this summary of the grace of God, the mercy of God to make us right vertically with him. He pivots now in Romans 12 to the implications of the gospel in our horizontal relationships. And we get to chapter 14, and what we, what we saw last week was kind of more of a summary introduction to a chapter that is talking about divisions within the church at Rome. And what we saw is there were two primary factions within this church. You had, on the one hand, you had Jewish Christians who had been raised in synagogue and had been raised according to uh, the practices of Judaism, who, who brought into then Christianity some of these uh, conscientious scruples that were aligned with their background, traditions that they had practiced, that even now, uh, as a Christian, their, their conscience is sensitive to some of these things that they had always been told was right or wrong. Specifically, Paul mentions dietary laws and Sabbath practices. They were conscientious about these things, even now believing in Jesus and not trusting in temple worship uh, in some way to make them right before God. But yet they're consciences are weak. Paul calls this group the weak in faith, okay, the weak in faith. They are contrasted with the other group that was there in the church at Rome, uh, and this group are, the, they are the Gentile Christians. These are uh, those who had grown up just pagan, okay? Maybe you can relate more to this group. I don't know, but they just grew up pagan. Like, they didn't, they didn't know the Old Testament. They, they didn't know anything about dietary laws, never heard of a Sabbath, uh, they didn't come to their, to their Christianity with any of that kind of religious practice baggage. And so they looked at the Jewish Christians in the church who were all scrupulous about Sabbath and very careful about what they ate and what they didn't eat, and they looked at it and they thought, this is silly. Like, this is irrelevant now that Jesus has come. Why are you so, like, wrapped around the axle on some of these matters. And so Paul calls that group the strong in faith. And so if you read Romans 14, he is, he is exhorting both of these groups, the strong in faith and the weak in faith. He has something to say to both of them because what happened in the church was the Jewish Christians, the weak in faith, were appalled that these Gentile Christians were on Saturday acting like it was just no big deal and were eating, you know, whatever they want, jolly well wanted to. No good Christian would eat pork. I mean, come on, read the Old Testament. We're not supposed to do this. And so they would go to the church potluck and they were distressed at all the ham and cheese soups and the pork and the beans that was being served. Could we, could we please keep pig off the menu at the church? 
Now, this seems a little strange maybe to us, but imagine with me that you, uh, that you, you, know, you took a job in Shipshawana. Here in Indiana, if you're joining somewhere outside of Indiana, you don't know what Shipshawana is. It's, a, it's an Amish, a strong Amish population there in, in Shipshawana. Let's say you, you went to Shipshawana and you're looking for churches and, and uh, you know, most of the churches perhaps, let's just say, are filled with Amish and Mennonites. And, and uh, so you, you pull up to visit the church in your Ford F-150. And you, and you get out and you step through manure on the way to the church. And you think, what, what is going, can't they clean the sidewalks around here from horse manure? What's wrong with this church and these people? And yet the people inside the church are looking out the window at you pulling up in your Ford F-150 and they're thinking, who does he think he is? Driving something like that because they have certain practices. It's just an analogy. It gives you a sense of what this was like in the church at at Rome, you had the, the, the weak that were judging the strong for exercising liberty, and you had the strong despising the weak for their oversensitive conscience and their scruples, and saying, come on, grow up, what's wrong with you? Now, I know none of us would ever be this way. This is all historic, like we're never this way, right? Churches are never known for being divisive about non-essential things, non-gospel things, are they? Of course, tongue-in-cheek, we are exactly the same way. And so this whole chapter, if you're like, okay, how big a deal is this? Can we just skip on? I don't need to know about vegetable eating and, and pork, okay? Notice there's an entire chapter in Romans that is dedicated to this. In fact, it even bleeds over into chapter 15. A chapter and a third of the book of Romans, arguably the most important book in the Bible, is about Christians within the church who are being divisive and are elevating secondary things to being primary things. And Paul has very strong language for them. And so we got going in this last week. Today we're going to focus on verses uh, 7 through 12 and uh, a sermon entitled, Liberty and the Lordship of Christ. This is what Paul says, beginning in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. May God bless his word to us today. So we say, Hey, Romans 14, is this really about carnivores and herbivores? Like, is that what this is about? Carnivorous Christians and herbivorous Christians. Is this, you know, it's, it's about that, right? No, it's not about that. Is this really about whether you should mix pork and beans? Is that a viable choice for Christians? No, it's not about that. What is really at stake with these issues? And Romans 14 here tells us that how we treat each other in these non-essential issues 
is a sure indication of who has Jesus as Lord of their life. Can I say that again? The way that we treat each other in these non-essential issues is a clear indication of who is living with Jesus, Lord of their life. And I'm gonna unpack that here because that's what Paul, Paul does. Who is Lord of my life? Is it me? Are, are these non-essential issues and these differences of opinion, are these opportunities for me to exert myself in my church and for everybody to bend to what I think or is there something much more meaningful in view here? And indeed there is. And where Paul begins now is in terms of whose, whose possession are we? Like who really is in charge and Lord of my life? Look at verse seven again. For none of us lives to himself. We might insert the word for. None of us lives for himself. And none of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, here's the possessive language, we are the Lord's. Do you see that? We are the Lord's. Okay, so living or dying to ourselves, again, is basically saying living or dying for myself. Who, who really is in charge of my life? Who am, who's on the throne of my life? of my heart. And so he's describing a very selfish approach to these issues. My life is mine. I'm going to do what I want. I'm, I'm going I'm to express my freedom if I want. I'm going to judge somebody that disagrees with me if I want. I'm going to live for me first and foremost. Why? Because my life is my own. I got rights around here and nobody's going to tell me nothing. And none of us dies to himself. Do you see that? There is in the mentality of the selfish individual that I, that my today is mine, my tomorrow is mine as well. My future is mine. I am in charge of my life and I am going to do what I want. I'm the captain of my of my destiny. I thought of the words of the, of the poem Invictus, if you've heard of this. This is, uh, this is man living for himself in, a, in that sort of existential, supreme way. The, the poem ends with this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And just hear the hubris of the human heart there, like I am in charge of my of my life. Now, in terms of Romans 14, you bring that kind of selfish mentality into a local church. What does that look like? Well, these individuals would not admit it, but their posture is that the church basically exists for me. This is a place, this is a context for me to self-actualize, for me to become all that I need to be, all that God would have me to be. The leaders must bend to me. The other members must bend to me. The tender consciences of other Christians, I don't care about that. I'm going to eat what I want. You can't tell me what I'm going to eat at the church potluck. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to drink what I want when I want to drink it. I'm going to Sabbath if I want, I'm not, and I'm going to not Sabbath if I want. 
How my actions affect you is really no concern of mine because this is about me. And so I'm just gonna approach this with me on the throne. Now, I've sort of tried to exaggerate a little bit, and maybe you think I exaggerated a lot, and that's probably because you've never been in church leadership. <laughs> because if you spent a week in any kind of an official capacity in the church, you would realize that what I'm describing here is far more rampant than probably the average congregant would begin to realize. This sort of uh, me first attitude. This is consumer Christianity. This is, uh, you take American sort of material consumerism and you insert it into a local church where in the world, you know, the, it's all about the customer. And in the church, it's easy for us to think, then I'm the customer in the church and so therefore it's all about me. And that would be wrong. And that's what Paul is saying here. The local church does not exist for me. I can't come to a, a local church and say, I'm gonna serve as long as it's convenient for me. I'm going to support as long as it's something's good for me. I'm gonna stay until I perceive maybe there's something better that could sort of expand my footprint more. And then I'm gonna jump, go to the latest thing. Why? Because church is about me. I am the captain of my, of my soul. And what, what was happening in Rome's, Rome was this attitude was creating chaos in the church. And Paul here says the first issue is the question of every single person in the church realizing who owns me? Who own, whose am I? Am I my own or am I owned by another. Again, verse eight, for if we live, we live, okay, to the Lord, okay? I don't live to me, I live, you get it? To the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What does it mean to be a Christian? You might say, how did I become the possession of Christ? Here's the answer. You were bought with a price, a precious price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ was a ransom payment for my sin. I deserved hell. Jesus bought me out of that slavery to sin and that, that destiny in hell. He bought me out of that by the precious blood of his death. And now I am, the Bible talks about, I am a slave to Christ. I am his servant. He is the Lord of my life. My death, my eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Got that? We no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Now friends, this is critical on this whole subject of Christian liberty, because if we come to this from a me first perspective, not only are we being unbiblical, but we are, we are gonna fall into the same trap as what was going on in the Church of Rome, where this is not creating unity. And the foundation of Christian liberty is the lordship of Jesus Christ over the church and the people in the church living from that with that posture that this is about 
This is about him. This is, my life is not about me. My death isn't about me. My eternity isn't about me. Because Jesus bought me, I am his, therefore my life is for him. My death will be for him. My eternity will be for him. So who is really enthroned in my life? Let's see the comparison here now. The self-enthroned professing Christian, and I say it that way because it's almost an oxymoron to say that a Christian who is self is the Lord of their life, but just to say it that way, approaches then these differences of conscience and differences of lifestyle practice like a hammer approaches a nail. Bam! Oh, you have a difference of opinion? Boom! Why? Because I'm on the throne of my own heart. His primary concern has nothing to do with the effect of this on the other individual, the effect of it in the church. They just want full expression of their freedom in Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. So what's their ultimate? Their ultimate is self. At best, this person is an immature Christian. At worst, they are a pretending Christian because they are not living with Jesus as the Lord of their Savior of their life. And as a side note, you got to realize in every local church, we have, we, have, we have huge percentages of people who actually are not regenerate. When I get discouraged, I get thinking like this. You know, Warren Wiersbe said, it's time we realize that 80% of people in evangelical churches aren't actually regenerate. 80%. Now, if he's even off by a half, and it's 40%, how many people are kind of trafficking through the church, not actually regenerate, not actually saved? It explains a lot within a local church. But for those that are actually Christians, Jesus is our Lord. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Does that resonate in your heart today? Is there an amen within you, gladly embracing? That's exactly right. I've been bought with a price. I am Christ. I am the Lord's. So whose possession are we? That's where he begins. And from that now, he flows into the question, well, then who is the priority? Like if we are owned by Jesus, if he is, if he is enthroned in the, in, the, in the hearts of his people, then, then who is the priority? So the mature Christian now lives in verse 8 where he says, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's the mature Christian. My life is the Lord's. Like everything that I am is his. I could easily call this the all about him approach to Christian liberty. And this is what I'm urging us as a church family and you, dear brother or sister, to approach these kinds of matters, not with the first, what do I think, what's best for me, but with Christ as the ultimate priority. The glory of Jesus is the prime directive of the Christian. And we have to approach it with that as the first step. What's best for Jesus' name? What's best for Jesus' church? What's best for this brother or sister who was bought with the same precious blood that I was bought with? What's gonna be best for him and his glory? 
This isn't about me. This isn't about bacon. This isn't about vegetables. This isn't about Sabbath. This isn't about wine drinking. This is about Christ. And Paul gets to that. We're not quite there, but look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God, this is my favorite verse in the whole text. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Okay, we're going to get to that. But basically what he's saying is, you're fighting about the veggies, and you're fighting about the pork, and you're fighting about the Sabbath, and you're fighting about the wine drinking, and I'm here to tell you the kingdom of God isn't about those things. Quit fighting about them. What is it about? It is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But what happens so often is these things take on a life of their own, and it's so easy for us to elevate these secondary things and even unconsciously, we become our emotions and our, our arguments wrap around these secondary things. We elevate them in priority. What does it look like when that happens? Well, listen, dear church family, there is another legalism trap here. And this is especially true if you come at these issues from the weaker Christian perspective. Here's what oftentimes happens, is you have somebody who has a weaker conscience on an area, but then maybe they, you know, the Bible or friends or whatever, they discover their freedom. And they're like, wow, I'm free to actually do this sort of thing, to be involved in this sort of thing. And they swing over to the other perspective, the other side of this, and now, they bask in their freedom. Indeed, they even look down their noses on people from their past who haven't discovered this freedom. And then they think, I am more enlightened and godly than they, because look at me, I'm participating in this particular area. And so listen, this is so critical. There are two kinds of legalism, friends. There's the kind that says, I'm more godly because I don't do something. And then there's the kind that says, I'm more godly because I do do something. Both of those are bondage. What are we aiming for here? True freedom is when you are free not to express your freedom for the sake of peace and unity. Have you arrived there with these secondary issues? <laughs> Where you are free not to do it, not because your conscience doesn't allow you to do it, but because you are prioritizing the things of God and the other person and peace and unity in the church. And forgive me for sitting on this one, but I've been pastoring a long time and I have seen this over and over. Listen to me, please. I've preached this message, eh, I'm not sure how many times, numerous times over the years. And what we say, and I'm going to get to this probably next week, is that we want to be a church that draws the lines where the Bible draws the lines, okay? We don't want man-made lines. We want God-made lines. And we want to align our consciences with the, God, with the God lines. So that's where we're going with this. But many of us, myself included, come out of a background where there were a lot of man-made lines. And if you come out of a tradition where those lines were not like suggestions, but more measures of godliness, 
This whole area becomes a kind of, is I think particularly challenging. So people with a weaker conscience come to our church, and we're trying to draw lines where the Bible draws the lines, and they uh, discover that the lines of their background aren't maybe quite exactly right, and maybe they change. And you know what? That change is good, except when it's not good. And what I have observed is that people, especially from weak conscience backgrounds, they discover freedom in Jesus in some particular area, and they swing over to the other side. And now there's a kind of pride in their freedom, and even a flaunting of their freedom. And some people become obnoxious about it to the annoyance of their family and friends, especially from their background. They will post themselves participating in said freedom online. They will insist on expressing their freedom at the next family gathering. They can't wait for Thanksgiving meal to show off how free they are. They talk about it openly. It's a big deal to them. And this is where it takes eyes of maturity to see what is actually going on here. They have traded one false measure of godliness for a different false measure of godliness. What is maturity in these areas? What is actual freedom? It is not, uh, it's not the not doing something, nor the freedom to do something, but the freedom to do it or not based on what is in the best interest of Jesus Christ and his people. That's the freedom that we're aiming for here and where Paul is going. So you say, well, Pastor Steve, there was a lot of verbiage there. Yeah, there was. Uh, what am I actually saying? If I could just like distill this down. Here's what I think Paul is saying here. Is this little, some of you are math geeks, so this is for you, okay? Okay, here's immaturity. This is the immature equation. Okay, Jesus is over me, oh yes, and I'll sing songs about the lordship of Jesus, and I, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, amen, amen. But really, the way that I live my life is that, that I'm more important than others. So yes, Jesus is more important than me, but horizontally, I live in a way that I'm more important than other people. That is immaturity, and that was rampant in the church at Rome. What is Paul urging? This is what he's urging, is simply this, that when Jesus is my Lord, when I am his possession, when he's more important than me, that means that in the church, other people are also more important than me. That I am not on the throne in the church. That Jesus on the throne of my heart postures me towards other people where I am going to defer and incline myself to where your interests are more important than mine. I made that up, I don't know if that's helpful to anybody, but I throw it out there, okay? I think that's what he's getting at. So the question is not first, do I have liberty in this area? But who is my Lord? Who is the functional priority for the choices that I am making when I am in community with other Christians? Because we cannot say that Jesus is our Lord and trash the church for our preferences. These are secondary things. These are not essential things. And next week I think we're gonna get into what's essential, what's not essential. But the kingdom of God isn't about the preferences. 
And when in a local church, people go to war about vegetables and, uh, and, and pork, it says something about the theology and the understanding of the actual gospel in the hearts of the people that are fighting about it. It is unbecoming. This is not what we're made for. We're not made to live for these secondary things or to make them too big a deal. Christ is the big deal. Jesus' glory, his kingdom. That's what we're gathering for. That's what we're living for. Don't, don't demean the glory of Jesus by making the church about some pork and vegetables. Now, are we thinking about that when we argue about these kind of things? No. These things, they take on a life of their own. If you've ever been in an argument about a secondary thing that's threatening to become a primary thing in the church, it takes on a life of its own. It suddenly becomes like this thing, and you've got no verses for it, but everyone's passionate about it. I used the analogy last week of the, uh, of the, of the Beirut bomb that, uh, that went off, and uh, if you know the story, the, the components of the bomb had been laying in the warehouse like for... For years, everybody knew it, but nobody was gonna deal with it, and what did it take? It all it took was a spark, and then kaboom. And in every local church, ours included, there's ammonium uh, nitrate laying all over the place. And we all carry it in our own hearts when we come to church. It's everywhere, and, and unfortunately, you have in the church simultaneously pyromaniacs. And they love to spark things and get things going. And all it takes is a spark and an ammonia nitrate sort of issue, and then all of a sudden, the bomb goes off in the church. So lest we think this is no big deal, and we treat unity and love and such as a thing that we can play with, notice where Paul goes next. He says, and let me remind you to whom you are going to give an account of your life. He warns us about the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And I want you to see here the context of the evaluation is how we treat each other in the church. You might think, well, it's going to be whether I robbed a bank or not. It's going to be whether or not I stayed married or not. It's going to be whether or not I was a good dad. Okay, fine, all those things. But that's not Romans 14. Romans 14 is, I'm going to give an account of how I treat other people within the church and whether I am promoting unity by prioritizing Jesus as Lord of the church. Are you prepared to give an account of yourself? for this. So we say, well, Paul, okay, this is a big deal. I get it. I'm going to be evaluated for whether I was a source of unity or not in the church or whether I was kind of making a lesser thing a big thing. How do I, how do I fight this? How do, I, how do I stop this? What do I do? How do I keep from despising people that have a difference of opinion in a secondary issue? 
And where Paul's going to go, and we're not going to get into those texts now, I'm just going to tell you, he's going to say, love diffuses the bomb. Christian agape love. Gospel-shaped, gospel-informed love diffuses the ammonium nitrate laying around the church. This love of Christ that compels me to put other people's interests and needs ahead of my own. We hinted at it in verse 19. So then let us pursue, okay, here's what we should really be about. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Or as 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not insist on its own way. Wouldn't that be a, a, a healing balm in every local church? Love does not insist on its own way. So what do we take from this? Okay, so you say, well, I'm not arguing about vegetables, but I'm arguing about X, Y, or Z. How should I think about this? There is an order of priority that Paul is getting at here that should reside within all of our hearts on these secondary issues. What is it? Here's four things. Number one, here's the most important thing. What would please the Lord? Now, why do I say that? Because if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. So therefore, in the decisions that I'm making and the priorities of my life, I'm going to think, okay, what would please God? What would please the Lord? That's number one. Number two, what would edify other people? Yeah, but I've got, I'm writing a book about pork and vegetables. You don't understand, like, I'm really knowledgeable about these things. Yeah, but is this going to build up the church? Like, is this, is this edifying? Is this going to be helpful? Third, what promotes peace and advances the gospel? You know, Paul is going to say, technically, the strong in faith are right. Did you know that? The strong in faith are right. But the question isn't being right. The question is, what is going to advance the name and the fame of Jesus? And am I going to torpedo that for the sake of my position on uh, broccoli? There's more petty things that churches have gone down over than broccoli. And no, you should not eat broccoli. Number four. What does my freedom enjoy? Finally, you get to this question, like, hey, what would I like to do? And praise God that it's in here that, you know, freedom is something to be enjoyed. But there's things more important than my freedom, is what Paul is, is saying. And so if you get to the end of this and it's all green light, then enjoy your, enjoy your pork chops fully. Just savor them. Eat them for leftovers for five days. It's fine. Now, how to do that faithfully is the rest of the chapter. And I keep giving little teasers, but there's so much good stuff to come here. The next couple weeks are going to be really, really good and incredibly practical and helpful, especially for identifying what's an essential thing and what's a non-essential thing. That's something that we need. But to ask the question, is what I'm talking about today relevant in the church today? Like everything I'm saying here, are you kind of like, ah, oh, this was great 2,000 years ago. We don't need this anymore. I would say to you this. I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. And 
more than any time I can remember over three decades of pastoring, what we're talking about here is desperately needed in the church today and in our church today. There's more ammonium nitrate around the church, bags of it, rooms filled with it, than we've ever had before. And I appeal today to those of you who seem to want to take the cultural wars outside the church and to bring them into the church. Perhaps things that you have a strong position on. Positions on COVID. Positions on politics. Positions on racial tensions. To ask the question, have you elevated that secondary thing in the church and sought to make it a primary thing? Or have you thought, what is going to lead to mutual edification and peace in the church? And that's what I'm really going to be focused on. And I wonder, are you possibly sowing division for the sake of vegetables and masks? In my opinion, I'm not the oldest one in the room, okay? I'm not the youngest one in the room. But I've, li- I've been around the block a few times. In my opinion, someday, we are going to look back at the cultural wars and even the church wars. And we are going to do so with regret, particularly the divisive attitudes. And if not in a few years, certainly at the judgment seat of Christ. We say, well, yeah, but this is what's going on. It's the world. All they have is the kingdom of man. They're going to fight over that. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to go to the mat over these things because it's all they have. But when God's people act like that stuff is all we have, it is denying the reality of having Christ forever. I mean, what's the John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And when we fight about secondary things within the church, we're forgetting the whole end of John 3, 16. This world is not all that we have. In fact, this Bible says this world is passing away. Why live for these things? Why go to war over these things? Now, I don't mind if you have an opinion about things in the culture and you're about this, that, or the other. But the church is not the place to fight the cultural wars. And I urge you not to turn the church into a battlefield for non-essential, non-gospel issues. Now, to give you one example of this, I read this. This is a professor from Westminster Seminary, theologian, who wrote a whole article applying Romans 14 to the debate within the church about masks. Here's what he says. This is not a plea for Christians to disengage with the culture. Rather, it is a plea for Christians on both sides to stop trying to use the visible church as a lever in the cultural war. The visible church, the institutional church, is not a soldier in the culture war for the right or the left. 
It is Christ's embassy to the world whose ministers and ambassadors are charged with three essential functions. Preach the gospel purely, administer the sacraments, holy baptism and the Lord's Supper purely, administer church discipline faithfully. We do not have a position about mass and viruses. This means that Christians are free to take different positions on the question. They are not entitled to draft the visible church into their army. They are not free to revile those in the church that disagree with them, nor are they free to split the church over such questions. Amen to that. So if you want to have a debate with Dr. Fauci, fine, have the debate with Dr. Fauci, but don't bring that debate into the church. That's not why we're here. That's not the purpose of the church, to decide such things. Write your editorials, write your nasty notes. Don't bring it into the church. If you want your Aunt Lulu to win the presidency, fine. Put banners up at your house, write the notes, you know, march on DC, what? fine, do it. But don't bring Aunt Lulu into the church and your crusade for her to be president into the church because that's not the purpose of the church. That's not our identity. That's not why we gather. She's not the priority of the church. If your passion is the Asian snail, I think it's great. That's great. But don't bring that crusade for the Asian snail into the church. We aren't here to decide what's a pandemic. We're not here to decide what's an endangered species. Advocate for those things elsewhere. Why do I say that? We are the church of Jesus Christ. Those are secondary. Fine, talk about it, debate about it, but don't bring it into the church. And certainly don't condescend to people who have a different position on the secondary things than you do. Don't judge them. Why? Because we're called to love each other in spite of the differences in those things. And if there is a faithful testimony needed today in this culture that we're living in, it is a church that is able to unite around the primary thing, which is Jesus Christ, and to not be known as a church of the secondary things. We're the church of Jesus Christ. I feel like, I mean, duh, duh. Jesus is our Lord, and we do what we do because he is who he is. And getting back on track with him should be our primary focus as the culture goes to pot. Which is just to say it this way, that even in areas of disagreement, we need to be all about him.